So there are two readings this morning. The first one is Zechariah chapter 9, um, starting at verse 1, and that is on page 1483 of the Black Church Bibles. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus, for the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for the sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 21, which is a few books over, but is on page 1535, and that will be verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth, Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. 
A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, thank you, Sam. It's good to meet you. If I don't know you, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor here, and I'd love to meet you personally afterwards and say good day, get to know you. Okay, we're in Advent season. The carols we sing, we've been singing today, remind us of God's coming to us, and they call us to rejoice. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Very similar to the call to rejoice we just heard in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you. It sounds just like a carol, really, when you think about it. Rejoicing greatly is precisely what the people did when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as their king. The people shouted out, they waved palm branches in the air. It was a wonderful moment. In fact, it was the moment that Zechariah chapter 9 spoke about, because 520 years later, after this word was prophesied, her king came, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. And yet we all know what happened just after that, don't we? How the very same crowd, one week later, turned on him and cried out for him to be crucified. And we ask, why? I mean, how could that happen? Such a massive change. And the answer must be, because his coming was for them, a massive, massive disappointment. Um, I think many people can relate to this when they think about Christmas. You know, we celebrate that in Christ's birth, God himself came to us. But with that announcement comes an enormous amount of expectation. Um, we sing the carol, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Um, it's one thing to sing, sing about God and sinners being reconciled, but peace on earth, peace on earth. That's what we sing in that carol. You know, the last 2,000 years have been a lot of things, but peaceful isn't one of the adjectives you'd use. Um, many people can feel, feel severely let down by God. The carol, O Holy Night, it's lovely to sing about the stars so brightly shining, but can we really sing that in his name all oppression shall cease? All oppression? You know, is that the experience of Christians now in China, in North Korea, in the Sudan? And what about those people who've come in Christ's name and brought oppression? In his name, all oppression shall cease. You see the issue, if God really did come, the living God, if he stepped into our world, why didn't he do more to fix it up? Why doesn't God do more now to fix up this mucked up world? We say God has come, celebrate. Well, why didn't he wipe out oppression and injustice when he first came? You know, his seeming inaction on this to address the injustice of the world can be for many people a barrier to belief. So it's easy to be disappointed with God, and yet God calls for us to have a different response. Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, because your king comes to you. God says that him coming is a cause for joy rather than disappointment. So clearly, assuming God knows what he's doing, there is something that he gets which 
we miss. All right. So when Zechariah called people to rejoice, what was it about the king's coming which really did give grounds for real rejoicing? Wouldn't you love to know it? All right, let's pray that God would help us. Father, we acknowledge we don't know everything about what you've planned, and we do have real questions, and so we pray, please open our eyes to what we're missing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so come back to that moment when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was a highly symbolic act, okay? Its significance wouldn't have been missed by anyone there. Everyone would have known or at least thought they knew what was meant because it fulfilled one of their favourite messianic prophecies, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Okay, and there's the, the prophecy. It begins with a call to greatly rejoice. Why? Because your king has come, finally. Your king, right? Not everyone else's king. Not Darius, the head of the Persian Empire. Your king. Okay, your king. Are you one of God's people? Well, if so, you have a king. Did you know that? It's not just like you've got a ticket out of leave, a ticket of leave, a get out of jail free card. You have a king. And his name is Jesus. And he is coming. This prophecy looks forward to that moment. And the reason people are called to rejoice is because he is righteous, meaning there is nothing oppressive or oppressing about his character. There's nothing false. There's nothing deceitful. There is nothing that's unfair. He comes righteous and having salvation, meaning rescue from a situation we can't get ourselves out of, whatever oppression we might be under, Whatever chains enslaved to, the king comes to set us free. And riding on a donkey was the sign from the prophecy that Jesus was this king. Okay, he's a king who rules. What does his rule mean for the people of God? Well, it means peace. Of course, not just temporary peace, that sort of lull between conflicts, but permanent peace, peace which means disarmament. Some of you are old enough to remember the end of the Cold War. It might be starting again, but <laughs> if you remember the end when um, the Soviet Union started dismantling their long-range nuclear missiles. It was incredible. Well, here is a permanent disarmament because there are no more enemies. Look at verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken... And he will proclaim peace to the nations, right? So this vision is not just of the Jewish people of God enjoying this, but believers from all nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, who is this king, according to Zechariah? Well, earlier, God had said that he himself was coming. And now he says, your king will come. Is this king God himself? It looks like it. Verse 10 begins with God himself speaking. I will take away the war machinery from Israel. But then God starts speaking about the king as a different person. I will take away the chariots and war horses, but he will proclaim peace to the nations. So the king is someone identified with God and yet separate to God, but backed by God. And Zechariah 9 is a prophecy that such a king with astounding identity and authority and character and promise, will come. Now, if this is the sort of king that Jesus 
himself was claiming when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone there knew what he was announcing and responded with joy, then we have to ask the question, why did they reject him and have him crucified barely a week later? Well, the answer is that they were expecting a king who would overthrow and defeat their enemies, which to the Jews in Jesus' day meant the Romans. And the Romans were enemies. They were brutal. But they were just another oppressor in a long line of oppressors that, went, that, that Israel suffered going back 600 years. There were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians who were a bit kinder to them, then the Greeks under Alexander the Great, then the Romans, right? 600 years of being oppressed. And so by the time of Jesus, expectations were running high. They'd had enough. And from Zechariah, they hung on to this because here was a promise that their king would come and proclaim a permanent peace, which implied all their enemies would be permanently put down and they themselves would be the victors over the other nations. Because this is what God had spoken. Verses 1 to 8, they would be the victors. God says his word is against all the enemies of his people. And then he lists them. You've got the Syrians up north. You've got Tyre and Sidon on the coast who didn't fight Israel, but they were pretentious in their arrogance against them. And then you've got the ancient enemies, the Philistines in Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron and Ashdod, Philistine cities. They were all past enemies, ancient small-time enemies, Syria, Tyre and Sidon. They'd all been smashed by the Babylonians by the time of this prophecy. The Philistines, they'd been smashed by King David. They were past enemies and it's as if to say in their listing, your current enemies are going to meet the same end. Because then in verse 8, God says, I'm going to put an end to this warring. I myself will defend my house against marauding forces. Read my lips. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. So God is presenting himself as a warrior God who will put an end to all oppression once and for all. So the Jews, you see, had a good reason to expect permanent victory. And they had good reason to expect, secondly, that they themselves would share in that victory. They'd share in the fighting. Verses 11 to 18, the verses after the king comes to you, verses, paint God as bending Judah like a bow and, and inserting Ephraim, Israel, in as the arrow in that bow. And then of God rousing Jerusalem's sons against the other nations like Greece. And then the Lord himself appearing over them, sounding the battle trumpet, marching to war, shielding his people. And if you remember the story of David and Goliath, how David overcame Goliath the giant with a sling and a stone. In verse 15, God picks up that imagery and says his people will overcome the nations with sling stones and great will be their victory roar, because on that day, verse 16, that will be the day the Lord their God saves them. They would share in the victory, you see. So when Jesus rides that donkey into Jerusalem as their king, it's easy to see what they were expecting would happen. God would be completely victorious over all their enemies. They too would share in the fight. They would share in the victory, because that's what Zechariah 9 says, isn't it? Now, obviously, if that's what Jesus thought it said, he'd have done exactly that. But he didn't, did he? So what did he get about this prophecy in Zechariah that they missed? What did they miss to make such a disastrous mistake that they would turn on the Christ and crucify him? 
Well, their mistake was to latch on only to part of the message that they liked and missing everything that God said. First, the donkey in verse 9. Why would the king come on a donkey, which is about as far away from a war horse that you could get? Answer, because it's about as far away from a war horse as you can get. This is not a king who's come to lead a military army into battle. In that respect, the king is gentle. He is lowly. He is not a military campaigner. Second, verse 10, the king shall proclaim peace to the nations, which isn't to announce the Jews as the winners and the nations as the losers. This is an announcement of peace to the nations as well. Uh, Gentiles and Jews, meaning that Gentiles also can experience peace. And what does that mean? The, the word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which refers to wholeness, this, this well-being and rich flourishing as God's people under God's blessing. So if you proclaim peace, shalom, to the nations, it's the proclamation that their king is the king of all people. And through him you may enter into peace and blessing and wholeness and thriving, which God wants us to give. How? How does it come if it's not through military victory? Well, verse 11 speaks of the covenant of my blood, the blood of the new covenant which Jesus poured out for many to make peace with God possible. Chapter 11 will speak of the 30 pieces of silver which Judas is paid to betray Jesus to his death. In chapter 12, we, we, we'll hear Jesus' own words. We'll look at them next week. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. A prophecy of his death. It's through Jesus' death that the king will bring peace to the nations. Third, within Zechariah, there is a hint that not everything mentioned in this chapter will happen at once. Because it seems that the Lord speaks of another second appearing later, sometime after the forging of the covenant of blood. Have a look at verse 14. Then, after the covenant of blood has been forged, then, after that, the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. That's when the trumpet will sound. That's when he really will fight against those who stand against him and his people. So you put it all together, what have you got in Zechariah? You've got a promise that the king will come to God's people, gentle, without a sword. A covenant of blood will be forged. There will be peace with God proclaimed to the nations. And then the Lord will bring permanent destruction of all who remain opposed to him and his people. And then only after that that's happened can permanent peace become a reality under the reign of the victorious king. Now you might be thinking, what of all the war imagery, what of the imagery of the people of God being used in the war. Well, when you read what Jesus himself said, he did speak of enemies. He does speak of opposition, but he never sanctions bloodshed or violence in his name. Never. But just because he never sanctions bloodshed or violence doesn't mean that we don't have weapons. And it doesn't mean that we're not meant to see ourselves as soldiers we are in a spiritual battle. And the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. The New Testament's clear on this. We have the helmet of salvation. Immense assurance, right? We know where we're going. There's no fear about that. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The shield of faith. 
the breastplate of Christ's righteousness which protects us. Feet that are fitted with the readiness that come from the gospel of peace. Ready to proclaim the peace to the nations through the message of the king with the help of the spirit of the king through the gospel of the king. Now, do you see yourself as a soldier in a war? Some of that might sit uneasily with us. You know, some of us aren't really sure about whether we're in a relationship of peace with God ourselves. But of course, right now, peace and the offer of peace is being proclaimed to you. You know, someone from another nation, Australia, or wherever you come from. It's being proclaimed. And the message is don't put off accepting because verse 1 in chapter 9 is a warning against those that have the word of God um, sorry, in verse 1, the word of God is spoken against people, and you wouldn't want to be in that situation. Others here, of course, know that God has given us peace with him, but still, that day when the Lord next appears as king to bring judgment on the nations, that is a worrying thought, and it sits uneasily, and we don't like thinking about it. And yet God, through Zechariah, he is actually saying something different, isn't he? He's saying you've got to rejoice greatly about that. On the day the king comes again. Yes, it will be a day of judgment, but you think, how do, how, how do I reconcile this? How do I rejoice greatly in, in a day of judgment? Well, there's two things that help. Firstly, for those who have suffered in Christ's name, it will be a day of relief. It will be a day of justice and one we long for. Listen to how Paul speaks about it in 2 Thessalonians. The Thessalonian church were persecuted immensely for being Christian. And he writes and he comforts them but mentioning the day of judgment. Isn't it interesting? He says God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you. Do you see? Do you hear how he's speaking of that day in very stark terms positively as a day which will bring relief and a day of immense comfort for those Christians who are suffering you know, to the Christians in China or in North Korea or in Syria or in Yemen or in Iran, this is actually a word of comfort. It's part of the good news. A day of justice and relief is coming. Secondly, if we find that hard now, it is worth knowing that then on that last day, we will be rejoicing, even if we think, I don't know that I'll be rejoicing now. I can tell you, you will be, if you're one of Christ's people. How do I know? Because we're told that's what we will be doing. In the book of Revelation, when the day of judgment is described, the repeated refrain, when you read it, that keeps coming up from the mouth of the saints, is, great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments. And they're not faking it. They know it's real. And they think, finally, everything is put right and God has acted, and it is good, and there's nothing bad about that which God has done because it's all right and fair and just. 
And it keeps being said. And what that's saying is that from our own mouths we will come voluntary praise of God for his judgment. And it will happen if you're in Christ. Well, what does it mean for us? Last point, faith, fighting, rejoicing. First of all, faith. Um, We are, in one way, like the lighthouse keeper, (laughs) standing between visits. Um, We live in the in-between times, between Christ's first coming in gentleness and his second coming in power and glory. Just because we do not yet have peace on earth doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It is. It will. One day. And waiting calls for faith. We need to be people of faith. And when you're disturbed by what you see on the television or what happens in your own life, the right response is to pray that Christ would come and put it right. Secondly, fighting. We know that Christ will put down all enemies on his return, but we know that now what he's doing is proclaiming peace to all the nations through the gospel. The news that through his blood, there is the real offer of peace, peace with God and every blessing wrapped up in that word. Now that changes the way we think. We are still soldiers, but how do we fight now that we've got that? Paul said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. Zechariah is saying we need to see ourselves as people who fight, not with each other, and not as the world does, but with the weapons that God gives, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Feet that are fitted with the readiness that come from the gospel of peace. We need to be people who are soldiers fighting to win people from nations through righteousness, through prayer, through the gospel of peace. And finally, rejoicing. You know, there is so much to rejoice about in Christ's first coming. But if you catch yourself wondering, why didn't God do something then? If he really stepped into our world, why didn't he do more to fix it up? If you find yourself asking that question, what you've got to do is rejoice. Rejoice that he will. He will. Because he said he will. And then you think, well, he's taken a jolly long time, hasn't he? I'm so glad he has. Are you? I mean, imagine what would have happened if Jesus returned 100 years ago. Where would that leave you or me? Where would that leave your family and friends who this year you're going to share the gospel with? And by God's grace and his spirit, they might respond. Where would that leave them? I'm so glad God has been patient. He wants to save more. And that's why he's delayed. What a thing to rejoice in. He has set the agenda. The king has come. And now's the time to proclaim peace to the nations through Christ, through his death, the covenant of peace, that then, with the nations saved, he can come back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. We rejoice 
that you came once gentle and having salvation on a donkey, not a war horse. But we know that the Lord Jesus will return in power and glory. And that will be it. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to wait in faith and help us to fight, not with our fists or weapons, but with the weapons you give, the weapons of faith and the spirit and the word and the gospel. And help us to be people who genuinely this Christmas rejoice and fix our eyes on the fact that you are coming again. In Jesus' name, amen.